Hey everyone, welcome to Faith and Capital. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. So today we are continuing a two-part series on the Philippines and theology of struggle with Dr. Victor Aguilon. Now check out part one for a very brief history of colonialism and Christianity in the Philippines. One of the interesting that interesting things that I thought Aguilon discussed for us in that first episode was the images of Christ um, from a colonial perspective or from the more folk um, Christianity. And um, I think you'll find that really interesting. Um, Early on in this talk, though, we discussed the importance of nationalist struggles for the neo-colonial situation. Uh, So I'd recommend checking out our ongoing Wretched of the Earth series for thinking about the role of nationalism in revolutionary struggles. Later on, Dr. Aguilon discusses how theology of struggle engages the question of violence and revolutionary struggle. And in the end, we reflect on what Christians can be doing in this moment, and I hope you'll stick around for that as well. As always, thanks for the old and new patron supporters. You know, like many of you, I work in terrible working conditions for a terrible wage, and I greatly appreciate everyone who financially supports this podcast and the energy I put into it. You know, outside of work, I'm involved in local organizing and political education. And so supporting me through this pod makes not just this content available, but other things possible as well. Again, thanks all. And if you have a dollar or two, you can support me at patreon.com slash faith and capital. And if you don't, you can always share the episode with a friend or leave a helpful review on iTunes. Um, if you're interested in some of the essays that we discuss, I'll, don't worry, uh, I'll link them in the show notes. And with that said, let's go ahead and dive back into my conversation with Dr. Victor Aguilar. Dr. Agolan, it's uh, it's so great to have you back, um, folks. If you're just now catching this episode, we um, this is part two of a two-part series on the Philippines and theology of struggle. I have with me Dr. Victor Agolan. Agu- uh, Dr. Agolan, it's great to see you again. Yes, uh, it's nice to be back, and nice that uh, this may be an opportunity for us to clarify some of the uh points related to the theology that is uniquely philippine in philippine context the kind of theology that we do in philippine context that deals with you know the struggle for emancipation and resistance against foreign domination Mm, excellent yeah the first episode you know we it was a lot of kind of historical analysis on the history of the relationship between the philippines and the u.s um also we talked um in the latter half we talked about kind of some some of its christian history as well and and i i learned so much and and i it's one thing to know about neocolonialism and colonialism on a broad um general but it's also really important i think to know the particularities um, especially something about like the relationship. I think the Philippines is playing such an important role in in possibility and openings for the future of the world right now. And so, yeah, again, I appreciate um, you coming on and, and talking with me again. And the first episode we talked a lot, uh, it, it was very much connected to your essay, The Other Side of Our Heritage, right? A lot of okay. the history. And uh, this episode, we're going to focus on two of your other works, the one being encountering Jesus in the midst of struggle, and the other okay. one being theology of struggle, a post-colonial critique okay. of Philippine Christianity and society. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, 
your work, of course, you've mentioned the importance already of the of historical context for doing theology, mm-hmm. and that theology of struggle in particular has been produced in relation to the concrete, material, lived experiences of the masses of Filipinos. Um, could yes. you kind of just get us rolling here? I- I'm going to ask you a very big question. I know it's really big, but like, you know, what is theology of struggle? Uh, theology of struggle is a theology that emerged from the struggle of the Filipino people uh, for emancipation from foreign domination. So it's really emerged from its long history of uh, anti-colonial struggle and resistance to neo-colonialism. And you might include today resistance against the onslaught of globalization. Okay, uh, So it emerged from that context. So it's, you might say it's a Christian response. It's a how we Filipino Christian live our faith uh, facing the challenges brought by globalization today and the history of colonialism and neo-colonialism. Once started by Spain and carried out by now by the United States. <laughs> and in a globalized, and in a globalized context, it's the advanced capitalist countries. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and in theology of struggle, you you mentioned how this is again a spiritual expression of desire for national liberation from neo-colonialism and imperialism. Could you tell us a little yeah. bit more about that? Like, what, what do you mean by a spiritual expression of desire for national liberation? You know, it's a result of uh, when you speak of the theology of struggle. It's there is that unique. Uh, the aspect where we acknowledge that Christianity is a foreign religion. Christianity was brought by the colonizer, but historically we appropriated it. There is something in Christianity that you know that provide uh, a certain uh, spirituality that enable us to transcend or see this part of Christianity distinct from the colonizer. So it became no longer a religion of the colonizer, but rather it became part of our culture. It, we, we appropriated Christianity as our own, uh, as our own, uh, meaning somehow we appropriated it and we, there, are, uh, there were elements that speak about our desire for liberation. Uh, for the term that we use is ginhawa, that is alleviation from suffering, something that we saw that Christianity can 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 offer, and 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 Christ Himself provide as a model for that uh, struggle against oppression, against injustice, and we appropriated it, but we acknowledge the fact that it was a religion brought by the colonizer. So you see, there's that ambivalence, huh? ambivalence in the way we appropriate Christianity. We have to accept it's a religion by the colonizer, and that would always be part of this theologizing. But at the same time, we have to, we have learned to bring within, uh, bring into this Christianity that we have appropriated our own culture, rediscover our own indigenous culture, rediscover who we are, uh, and, 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 and use these cultural resources uh, in in expressing this spirituality, this 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 faith that we call Christianity. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting is 
theology of struggle is kind of openly uh, anti-colonial. And anti-colonialism is a unique term, I think, in a world of like post-colonialism. Do do you see that as a, do you think there's a difference between kind of anti-colonial struggle and post-colonial, the the, the emergence of post-colonial analysis? Uh, In our first conversation, you you helped us understand that colonialism has kind of morphed into, uh, it's evolved into a neo-colonialism uh, right, uh, colonialism among capitalists is something of the past, but I think yeah. among um, Marxists we understand that it's um, that it's it's hasn't gone anywhere. Right, I live in the U.S. It's a it's a settler colony, and uh, and you're living in the Philippines. It's a neo colony. So yeah. So could you um, do, yeah. do you have any thoughts well, on that? Is there a difference between kind of anti-colonial and neo? Yeah, uh, the. When we highlight the anti-colonial uh, character of the theology of struggle is that we still acknowledge that somehow uh, Philippines, the Philippines somehow its, its, its economic structure, its political, uh, uh, its political uh, policy, and including foreign policy, is somehow tied to the interest of the United States. And... And and it's and subservient to the United States interests. Uh, so it it's not, you know, it's not like your typical colony where you have an occupying force, <laughs> literally a military force occupying a territory. The United, you don't have the U.S. bases here anymore. Uh, we have an interesting uh, mutual defense treaty, uh, but all this. Uh, arrangement were actually obtained when we were when the United States came and colonized us when the United States took over the Philippines from Spain. Though we have already successfully, you know, uh, somehow defeated Spain in our own uh, anti-Spanish uh, independence struggle during the in 1890 1899. Uh, so the neo-colonial is a system where where a powerful country like the United States exercise a kind of a dependency relation economically, politically. The Philippines has become a source of one, materials, raw materials, a source of not just raw material, not just natural resources, but even human resources. You know, it is interesting to look at the number of nurses that we have now in the United States. It's a brain drain phenomenon. Huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's and 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 culturally it also developed an interesting kind of mentality and that we call it a colonial mentality. We love more what is in the United States rather than loving what we have here in the Philippines. We learn more about American culture than our own culture. Uh, there is a it's it's a process of Americanization. Filipinos become more Americanized rather than Filipinos. Mm. Uh, and their loyalty is, meaning loyalty to the Philippines is identified with loyalty and support to the American interests. Uh, you know, there is also that ideological captivity involved when we speak of neocolonialism. So it's a total control, total domination of a former colonial master. And this domination remains strong culturally, uh, ideologically, politically, and economically without the direct colonial control. Uh, you might say it's a form of indirect control. 
and you somehow when you say it's indirect somehow it tend to uh, diminish the intensity of that control so i don't want to say it's indirect control it's better to say it's a new form of colonialism that is ideological political and economic that's incredibly well said i uh, i think that that really makes it clear for me and our listeners about neocolonialism, right? Um, it greatly depends on ideological uh, domination, right? Um, establishing a set of values and ideas, also a way of understanding someone like the U.S. and then also um, how Filipinos are uh, taught to understand themselves um, in relation to the United States. So yeah, I think that's really incredible uh, and really helpful for me. It's, it's not just ideological, it's also economic. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the economic uh, domination is quite glaring. Uh, example is the pharmaceutical industry. We don't have our own <laughs> pharmaceutical industry that we can claim our own. Uh, everything should be imported in the United States or in other advanced countries, Europe, like that. And the ingredients are just mixed here. We don't produce that. Yeah, and that's a great example as to why theology of a struggle would be nationalist as well, right? Because yeah. if the interests of the people are beholden by another people, then you really can't be for your, your people, right? Um, the the well-being uh, of the masses of, of, of Filipino people will be put at the expense of the profits of U.S. corporations. So could you actually tell us a little bit about that feature as well, the nationalist dynamic of theology of struggle? Because I think on one hand, especially Christians, We've been taught to say, well, Christianity and Jesus, it's kind of like for everyone. We should kind of erase um, particularity, erase difference. Let's deny. And what that does is actually um, avoid the actual material relationships and structures that persist. So, yeah. So why is the nationalist feature of theology of struggle an important part of the theology? Because we're talking here of the Filipino people. It's a struggle that the Filipino people have been waging for centuries, okay? And when we speak of the Filipino peoples, it cannot, we cannot separate it from our sense of national identity. And, and as I have mentioned, that neocolonialism is the force that dominates, that subjugate our, uh, uh, the Filipino people uh, and continues to subjugate. And, 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 and the struggle for identity, the struggle as a people, can only be expressed uh, in, as part of the struggle to be free from foreign domination. And to be free from foreign domination, one must emphasize one sense of nationality, one sense of nationhood as a political entity. Okay? Uh, it's, 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 it's a necessary struggle against, it's a necessary character of an anti-colonial struggle because it's a struggle for self-determination. It's a struggle that a people must determine its own destiny and its own history, not to be dictated, not to be uh, dominated by another, uh, you know, an outsider, uh, a foreign, an external force, a foreign power. And that's what makes the theology of struggle a national, a nationalist struggle. It's a struggle for self-determination as a people. Do you think that there's a difference uh, between different kinds of nationalisms? Say, because there are 
there are people in the U.S., right, who are white Christian nationalists, right? And that's kind of like the nationalism that is spoken <laughs> of in the U.S. Do you think there's a difference? <laughs> yeah, there's a difference. We, if uh, I remember that there, somebody has already mentioned that the United States is an ultra-nationalist, an imperialist nationalist, <laughs> mm -hmm. rather, than, uh, rather than engaging in self-determination, uh, self they want to determine the, uh, the, the destiny of other nations. <laughs> they want yes. to dictate the dis destiny of other nations. That's actually an imperialist nationalism. It's not an emancipatory nationalism. There's a difference. One is that it's an aggressive. It's a imperial. One to, 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 to expand and dominate others. That's uh, that's an ultranationalist uh, agenda. While our nationalism is emancipatory because we're struggling to, uh, to, to attain our own uh, destiny, uh, free from the shackle of foreign domination. So you, there's a difference because foreign domination is the reason why the Philippines remain poor, the uh, the reason why the Philippines remain uh, oppressed, the reason why the the Philippines remain in always in a disadvantage, even in the era of globalization. Okay, how come that more than seventy percent, some say ninety percent of the population remain what impoverished or struggling to uh, to realize their 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 dreams? Huh? Mm -hmm. Okay. And the obstacle is actually, you know, uh, neocolonialism today yeah. manifested in globalization. Uh, in uh, you know, before the Second World War, it was American imperialism. Mm. That's yeah, that's really helpful. Um, we talked a little bit about in our first conversation uh, regarding the theology of struggles kind of approach to the enculturation and hybridization um, of both the colonizer's religion and then also the relationship between uh, our two indigenous uh, praxis uh, history and um, spirituality. So could you kind of rehash a little bit about about how yeah. how are these two related, yeah. right? Okay. Uh, the, the, the theology of struggle, you know, it's anti-colonial. Huh? Okay, it's, it's part of the continuing struggle of the Filipino people to be free from foreign domination. Okay. Uh, so part of this, part of that struggle, as I've mentioned, it acknowledged that Christianity is a foreign religion. However, it also realized that it must become truly Filipino. Okay, it must become truly Filipino, and the process of becoming truly Filipino Christianity, meaning it must be truly Filipino Christianity, it must shed off, or it must somehow uh, be able to integrate be rooted in philippine culture why because the colonizer have damaged the philippine culture they have turned our culture upside down they have uh, turned our culture into a culture that is submissive and that should sub uh, uh, you know a filipino culture this indigenous culture or uh, you know uh, the missionary said it's the work of the devil it's need to be purified it's not good for it's not the right kind of culture for for uh, for christianity so we have to appropriate we have to adopt the hispanic culture uh, then the american culture so part of the struggle for liberation the part of the theology of struggle is to recover what we have lost what the colonizer have destroyed so it's an it's an attempt to recover 
some of the cultural resources that were taken away from uh, from us by the colonizer. Mm. One is the language. You know, just to give you an just to give you a an interesting uh, impact of of American neo-colonial re-engineering is the introduction of the foreign language. We were taught to speak English. Public education introduced by the American, the medium of instruction is English, rather than introducing the vernacular as a medium of instruction. So from grade school up to high school, up to college, since the American introduced the public educational system, they introduced English. So what happened to our language? Language, remember, is the medium of culture. And if you lose your language, you lose your culture, you lose your identity as a people. And the Americans were very successful in Americanizing our culture, telling us it's better to speak. If you want to, do you want to be civilized? You have to speak the English language. If you don't speak the English language, you will never be civilized. So what does it tell us about our culture? And and theology. The, the especially Protestant theology and you know contemporary theology have been exposed to um, you know Western theologizing. So part of the struggle now we have is to recover our own culture. And there is but the reason why it's a form of hybridized kind of theology is because we acknowledge uh, you know the, 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 that Christianity was introduced by the colonizer yeah but we appropriated it. okay that's one. However, it we need to reappropriate our own indigenous culture. And that means we have to return to our people. We have to be integrated with our people so that we recover and learn to speak the language of the ordinary people. So we can actually do a theology that is really close to the very heart of the Filipino people. When I think about the language of like hybridization, you know, on one hand, all Christianity is hybridized, correct? You know, like yeah. from, from its emergence, um, yeah. we had pagan religion, pagan religion and, um, and uh, Judaism. Those are at the foundations of this emerging, eventually what becomes like an early Christianity, right? And so on one hand, it's, it's important for especially like U.S. and European Christians to understand that even, you know, my own, my own tradition, you know, I grew up evangelical. It's like a third wave evangelicalism, which emerges in the seventies and eighties in the U S um, that is a hybridized Christianity, right? There's no like pure uh, Christianity out there. But one thing that I think I personally, I find really helpful to talk about in terms of like hybridization is that you're emphasizing um, this relationship to indigenous roots. And on one hand, I think, when some folks hear, um, because of colonialism, when people hear the language of uh, indigeneity or uh, indigenous kind of <clears throat> praxis, uh, communal relations, spirituality, they think it's like a, a return to something in the past. But in my mind, it's actually an opening to the future. Colonialism and neocolonialism, capitalism, these things kind of close off the future, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Capitalism at the end of the 20th century, it said, this is the end of the world. We've reached it. Mm -hmm. You know, we've made it, folks. So, you know, look around, um, whether you're in, you know, Guatemala or the Philippines or in uh, Detroit, right? This is, you know, we've made it. And um, this is the end. We've defeated, you know, the, the greatest competitor, which is communism. So, <laughs> so 
why should Christianity in the Philippines really engage indigenous roots? And do you think, it, again, do you think it's like a return to, to something in the past, or do you think it's actually an opening to the future? How so? When we speak of indigenization, it's a process, huh? It's so that we can actually go back to our people. Because uh, Christianity, uh, you might say the, 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 the official Christianity, the high Christianity, you might say, is totally separated from the folk. Christianity. These are the uh, these are the form of Christianity that has mixed with the indigenous uh, religious belief and some Christian belief. It's a it's a result of a kind of a syncretistic belief and 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 somehow uh, this kind of kind of Christianity uh, is looked down upon by the more sophisticated christian the more westernized christian mm. <laughs> the more colonized christian okay uh, uh one they don't speak the kind of language that this folk christian speak okay so there's that hierarchy and there's that gap uh and third it's not an official kind they don't adhere to the official doctrine the official teaching and when you speak of the official teaching, official this doctrine that uh, for the Catholic that comes from Vatican, for the Protestant that comes from the missionaries who introduce Christianity, or from the seminary where you are, especially, or from the Western theologians that theologians read in the seminary, <laughs> like Bart, like sure, <laughs> Karl yeah. Bart, uh, Paul Tillich. Yeah. We know more about we know more about Western theologians than our own in the our own theologians in the Philippines. Okay, mm -hmm. so 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 you now have this gap, and we speak a language which the ordinary Filipinos, the ordinary uh, the ordinary uh, Filipino Christian don't actually speak. Meaning the the academic uh, English language, that the language used by theologians. Uh, uh, so, 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 so the 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 indigenization process is actually going. It's not just. It's not really returning to the past in the sense of trying to find a pure form of 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 of, of culture free from foreign domination. No, it's returning to the past and and learning how our people struggle against foreign domination. It's learning the struggle that they have experienced. And how this struggle continues even today, so that we can now use the experience as part of our theologizing. Wonderful, wonderful. That's really helpful. Um, so another interesting part of theology of struggle is that it it rejects being associated with kind of this charity and paternalistic approach to the masses, yeah. right? Um, you mentioned, did you say like ninety some plus percent are kind of like working working poor? Yes, uh, so, you know it depends who's actually showing the statistics. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in the U.S., in the United States, they... sometimes they change the number of poor people if they change the number of you know the the so-called poverty line. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's actually an incredible. It's a it's a pretty insidious tool that politicians use to um, win kind of public support. Um, and if they can just, they're like, hey, poverty's down, or this, you know, unemployment is down, but when, when really, like, their measurements are absolutely absurd. Anyways, yeah, could you tell us a little bit about 
how theology of struggle is uh, against kind of forms of charity and paternalism and it offers, uh, what's its alternative that it offers? Okay, but the, as I mentioned, the theology of struggle is not just trying to recover its culture, but it also, you know, um, it's, it's, it's going back to the people. Huh? People, the ordinary people, the ordinary masses who are struggling daily just to earn a living, uh, to deal with their uh, everyday struggle, of course. Uh, also, the, the their advocacy for justice, for housing, for wages, for land, for you know ordinary you might uh, demand just to live as a human being, to live to have a decent life. So the theology of struggle include that one must go back where the people are, where they are struggling. Okay. So it's not just recovering the cultural resources, but actually, you know, going back to the people, being with them, immersing with them, uh, and knowing the very struggle that they, they are uh, experiencing. Okay. So, uh, so the one thing that theologians of the struggle would actually reject is the paternalistic kind of Christianity that was actually introduced by the colonizer. Uh, because it's a form of cultural imperialism, the purpose of that is to uh, is to institute uh, and to maintain this myth, this ideological myth, that the Western missionary is superior, and the Christianized native are inferior, and maintaining a paternalistic relationship, a master-slave relationship. Huh? Okay, that the uh, that the that the missionary is a dispenser of goods or grace or favor while the converted native are just recipient of that grace and law. and that perpetuate this 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 dominating relationship and that and if we allow that to continue and that kind of spirituality is a colonial spirituality rather than a, a spirituality that is liberating and anti-colonial okay so paternalistic Christianity, to me, is a colonial Christianity. It's a it's a it's a it's a kind of Christianity that perpetuate a you know a power an imbalanced power relation and continue to treat the you know the so-called inferior group of people uh, as 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 recipient of their grace, gift, support and tokens <laughs> yeah and do you see kind of that paternalistic colonial relationship being internalized and then actually implemented in filipino communities as well right so maybe it's not just you know on one hand it is between no, it's, 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 it, uh, it, it it's part of the mimicking uh because Eventually, uh, people wants to imitate the colonizer. So you now develop a series of hierarchy where there's some named some Filipinos who may appear to be like that of the American, like that of the you know uh, a superior white man. Okay, and he would now become a conduit also appear as a conduit dispenser of that favor. Okay. And eventually, this cycle uh, would 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 be would be internalized uh, internalized uh, psychologically. 
and and the inferiority will also be internalized the desire to be like that of the you know like the master would be there but at the same time one would always feel subordinated to the master mm. psychologically that's interesting there's this kind of this this greater contradiction right between the colonizer and the colonized and then it's it's kind of internalized and i hear you using the language of being mimicked um, on a micro level in christian communities to give you an example an interesting phenomenon that is actually taking place are you familiar with the praise and praise and worship <laughs> yeah i grew up evangelical. Worship, oh yeah the gospel, uh, the yeah, gospel. Yeah. Uh, no, it's becoming popular in the philippines but not in the vernacular not in the vernacular meaning not in the filipino cebuano languages but mm. rather in the english language they have to really mimic the songs the music sung yeah. by so-called praise and worship group in the u.s or in australia and as long if they can exactly mimic them they're more you know they're they're they're, they're uh you know they 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 are given more recognition than those who uh, those who try to indigenize the liturgy using local melodies and the vernacular. Yeah, and there's a ton of money behind that. that that's all kind of produced by right-wing evangelical groups. And it's, it's it really is a serious kind of contradiction that I think Christians, you know, radical and revolutionary Christians have to take seriously is the money behind even something like the music industry um where if if someone turns on a radio they are very very much likely to come across certain kinds of christian music which teach certain kinds of christianity um you know not just beliefs about god but i think as this whole conversation is uh, is revealing beliefs about ourselves and people in certain you know in, in particular contexts so i think you're absolutely right and so the alternative, right, pushing against charity and, and paternalistic relationships, theology of struggle suggests communities and, and praxis yeah. of participation and self-emancipation. Yes. Yeah. If When you go back to the people, this theologian is not going to lead the people. You know, we, uh, I think that's the, uh, I think we already, as I've mentioned, uh, the missionary always believe that they can dictate, they're the master. They're superior, while the you know the ordinary folks are inferior, and since that maintain a paternalistic relationship. Now, in the theology of liberation, uh, the theology of struggle, we that cannot be. Instead, the theology of struggle would work with the people, with the people, and uh, for the people, and with the people, and by the people, meaning that uh, the alternative is not something that the theologians offer. It's not something that, but rather it will be constructed by the people who are struggling and it will be led by the people who are struggling, okay, politically. Uh, so the process is that one must join an organized community in, in order to attain that kind of, of level of emancipation. Uh, the theologian must be with them not leading them okay there's always the temptation huh? uh, i have experienced that when i was working with a uh, uh, urban poor community and a peasant community since we can speak the we we we, we are educated we we know some of the laws we know we can read uh, some of the documents the tendency is for uh, the tendency is to depend on us they would say 
uh, you pastor, it's better for you to lead this to lead our organization, or maybe you can be be our spokesperson. Mm. Now that's a temptation that uh, pastors and theologians who espouse the theology of struggle should avoid. They should never, never claim leadership. Mm. Yeah, that's really. Or, uh... Or else we'll just be perpetuating the paternalistic kind of Christianity. Yeah. We become a Messiah, mm. <laughs> a savior mm. for them. Yes, mm. yeah, savior complex. That's really interesting. And and the and the last part of this conversation, I want to return. You, you, in one of your essays, Theology of Struggle, you suggest three kind of practical things that you think leaders uh, or or I guess you know you may not want to use that language, but pastors or teachers and and, and professors should be doing. But before we get there, one of the interesting things about theology of struggle to me is that it's an articulation of Christian revolutionary praxis. So um, how does theology of struggle think through the question of violence in particular and revolution? Okay, it's a good question. Uh, This is actually a a question that many of those in, in involved in the struggle, and especially those who have immersed themselves in the struggle of the masses, uh, have learned to deal with this question not as an option. Okay, the question of violence is violence is already there. <laughs> you know, uh, structural violence. Huh? You have the structure, the violence of poverty. The violence of uh, exploitation, the violence of oppression, deprivation, and marginalization. So you have the structural violence. So to raise the question of violence uh, and and somehow attributed that to people who are struggling seems to miss a very important point. Uh, they have they are victims of violence rather than insinuate that they're perpetrator of violence. <laughs> And I, you know, sometimes I always ask my some Christians who would raise that question. Uh, I, I mean, are you willing to turn your other cheek? Because you might be offering the cheek of others, not your cheek. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, but, uh, but okay, uh, but it's 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 still a debate. Uh, it's still ongoing. It's a personal debate, and it's a question of how do we deal with the question of violence. And and if you ask me, my position is it's it's a, it's always the choice of the people who are struggling. The question of violence is always addressed by the people who are struggling. But I would always answer they're the victims of violence. Now, but I, you know, I. I, 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 what's the right word? Um, but for those Christian, uh, meaning pastors, priests, or theologians, in the struggle, who choose to take the cross and face violence at their own risk, meaning without to resorting to violence, uh, again, that's also a personal choice. Okay. In other words, those Christians who choose to face you know the violence, okay, structural violence or the violence of the opposing, you know, state violence, especially state violence, uh, and 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 in you know acknowledging the risk involved. To me, uh, I, to me, it's it's something that one can one can 
take inspiration of their commitment and dedication. Okay. Mm-hmm. And as you've kind of alluded that there's actually conversation, dialogue, and debate um, amongst kind of the tradition of theology of struggle, correct? Uh, on this question and subject, and um, some folks have raised the fact that, well, if you look in the Gospels, Jesus was not, he was not a zealot, right? Yeah, he was not a zealot, yes. But he has members, but he has members who were zealots. Absolutely, yeah. I do think there's this interesting kind of play that some folks want to pretend that we can kind of perfectly, again, mimic or kind of repeat whatever Jesus did. And that's kind of the answer or the response of Christians today. But I think one of the things that Theology of Struggle is really pushing is we we have to understand our particular context. We have to understand Mm -hmm. kind of how we are organized. And uh, Theology of Struggle has engaged and it's been influenced by... Um, other social sciences, right? Uh, we did an episode on <clears throat> liberation theology uh, of Gustavo Gutierrez, and Gutierrez talks about how liberation theology engages Marxist analysis. It engages social sciences to understand kind of how people got where they are, and then also what must be done to to end that particular situation and to realize something way more life-affirming and democratic and participatory. Yeah, the, I think that the reason why uh, some people raise the question of violence is because, like what you said, Jesus' method was nonviolent. Jesus died on the cross rather than uh, raising the sword. Okay, and and somehow they use this as a way to question Christians who were in uh, who become involved in the struggle, right? But I think that's not an appropriate question. Why? Because what Jesus is asking us is to get involved. Get involved in our own context. Huh? Get involved and take the risk. Huh? Take the risk, and uh, and if that risk would entail, you know, facing death, then one should face death, rather than ask the question, what method should be used? Why are you asking about method when the method has already been, the method has already been decided? You have to fight. You have to take the side of those who are struggling. You have to be with them for justice, for liberation, for emancipation. Absolutely. And and for me, I think one of the, you know, as Marxism as a science, a true kernel of Marxism is revolutionary class struggle. And, and I'll acknowledge that there are lots of different kinds of Marxisms out there today. There have been ever since, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ever since yeah. Marx and Engels, right, after them, right? There was, you know, a, a lots of line struggle and debate. But if this particular form of social science helps us understand that to end colonialism, to end capitalism, that revolutionary struggle is necessary, then I think Christians should really engage, okay, so how do we think through this question? And I think I think it's encouraging to say, at least theology of struggle, it's not telling that this is the only way that the masses should be struggling, right? But it, it's saying that we are not against uh, you know, we, we support those who are willing to put their lives on the line for the self-emancipation. Yeah, I, I think it's, when we when we talk of struggle, immediately that comes to our mind is actually one carrying arms, going to the mountain or one confronting the police, doing that and that. No, no that, that's, I mean, that's a stereotyping and that's uh, creating an image which, you know, has... Uh, it's the the uh it's 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 really out of ignorance and fear 
why why they uh, attributed struggle to violence they always forget that these people have been victims of violence and they're trying to deal with and and to tell you the masses always start their struggle in in the most reformist peaceful way <laughs> the spiraling is actually when when the state or uh, the oppressor would actually intensify intensify the conflict mm. it's never the people it's never the ordinary people that intensify the conflict yes yeah, so or the escalate first... the conflict <laughs> or as i use it also... start the conflict right like like the Filipino people do, do not start the violence. The first act of violence is coming from the oppressor, from the exploiter. Yes, yes, uh, the exploiter. That's really helpful. Well, thank you for sharing that. And to, to kind of wrap this conversation up, I think theology of struggle, though it is a particular theology engaging a particular context, I think it really mm. has some excellent kind of universal aspects to it that Christians, no matter where, uh, no matter who you are, where you're at, can be applied. And in your essay, Theology of Struggle, A Post-Colonial Critique of Philippine Christianity and Society, mm. you've highlighted three really interesting things. And the first one is that you, first of all, name the church, right? Christian institutions, Christian communities, whether they're yeah. seminaries or church, you know, churches, or I don't know, even like just uh, um, organizations, Christian organizations. But yes. the church itself is a site mm to debate and critique yes. capitalist yes. co-optation of Christianity. This yes. It's a space. I said that the church can be a space where we can actually engage in a debate. Okay? Because we have to acknowledge that there are there are American Christians <laughs> and Filipino Christians. And we can be part of that space where American Christian and Filipino Christian can actually do a uh, a critic of one another. Okay, mm -hmm. there's a challenge for American to know its history. It's no, it's it's colonial missionary enterprise. That's a challenge that Christian in the United States needs to understand. And the church can provide that space. The Christian community can provide that space. Yeah. You know, whether we recognize it as a space or not, it is an important space for, I would say, the struggle. Yeah, it's it's a, yeah, it's it's where we can it is a space, then there are two possibilities. One one, it can also serve as a bridge, because when you have a space you can actually construct a bridge if the other party is willing to listen to the other. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and Christianity and will, willing to repent. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, this continual process of our, of our repentance. Christianity has played such an important and pivotal role, I think, in in uh, capitalism and colonialism and white supremacy. These things kind of being able to persist and expand, and so it's not something that we can just kind of let go. Um, if we want to radically transform the world, we have to radically. Um, engage mm. the the site of the church, and so the so that's one thing I think you really helpfully named. The, the second thing was that you tell teachers and thinkers, um, theologians or uh, educators, to immerse themselves in the lives and relationships and communities of the most exploited and oppressed masses, which is something I don't think many you know self-identifying quote-unquote radical Christians here in the U.S. take seriously. A lot of this quote-unquote like 
progressive or radical Christianity is something done online is um, it's, it's armchair. Yeah, it's an armchair. Armchair, <laughs> I'm armchair progressive. Exactly. exactly. Armchair radicalism. <laughs> I don't know if there's such thing as an armchair. Armchair revolutionary. <laughs> armchair revolutionary. Oh, that hurts. Oh, so why is why is immersion so fundamental to waging uh, class struggle and, and to transforming the church? Yeah. Okay. The reason why it's important for theologian pastors and leaders or church people in general to be immersed in the struggle huh? to be immersed in the struggle is because one would concretely experience and see the conflict okay the conflict the the root cause of the struggle and and the, then the root cause of the struggle is the injustice that is actually perpetrated against the people against the masses and when one see the injustice perpetrated against the masses and the people, one have to take side. Okay, one have to take side. And when you take side, it's a question of siding who are the victims. And I think it's obvious that one would not side with the perpetrator. <laughs> because the model that we follow as Christians is the model that Jesus has shown us. Jesus went to the sinners, went to the ordinary uh, Jews, and even the Samaritan, even the marginalized, he went to them. He identified with them. And, and if you are a disciple of Jesus, then we have to follow what Jesus had done to be the side uh, to be on the side of the victims, to be on the side of the victim of injustice. And these are the ordinary masses. And that is by being with them, we experience their suffering, we experience their struggle, and we will know the reality of injustice and why it needs to be overcome. We remain in our ivory tower, you would never understand what injustice really means. Absolutely. So, yeah, we won't understand what injustice means, and, you know, how it feels, and also we won't understand how to end the injustice as well. And, and so you're naming kind of the, the third one as well, right? Both immersion um, amongst the masses, um, especially the most exploited and oppressed, and actually participating in people's movements for transformation. Because when uh, if you are immersed with the people, you would eventually realize, you will realize that you have to be with, with them, one with them in their struggle. And you would see that they're really struggling to change their situation, to be free from this oppressive situation to put an end to injustice and this would call for emancipatory and transformation of society and of course also of the church because the church has you know in sad to say the church especially the institutional church has been identified with a system that perpetuates injustice i don't know whether the right word to say it's been co-opted by the by the system of injustice so we need to change the church also with the society okay so it's a call for transformation of church and society and if i may i think immersion is so important because i just i see so little of it i i think here in the u.s um or especially particularly from my own experience of christianity here um and i think immersion can do so many things for us on one hand I think immersion can also help us steer clear of different tactics, right? Um, how do we address the poverty? Well, if we are immersed, I think we are we will be closer to 
um, finding finding the solutions to addressing certain issues. Um, and also, I think it's it's really really fundamental if we are actually interested in organizing people for fundamental transformation, we have to be deeply rooted in real relationships. And and I think the most powerful way to organize people is not through Twitter. It's not through Instagram, Facebook stories or like live campaigns. It's not even through podcasts. Of course not. This is just, you know, a, a means to try and get some ideas and, and get people thinking so that the actual organization and relationships can be built so that we can actually win power one day. So, so I think immersion is so fundamental. And one last thing is I think I, this comes from both my like Maoist revolutionary communist science, right? Um, Maoism emphasizes the necessity of being immersed among the masses. And, and that's how we come, uh, that's one way that we can kind of steer clear from bad thinking, bad analysis, and then bad strategy. And then also, I think the Christian tradition speaks theologically right, about a God becoming human, right? Immersing God's self uh, amongst creation, amongst the very people and creatures and, and creation that God wants to liberate, to save. And so without the incarnation, without the immersion of God, there is no liberatory salvific work. And so I think both the science of Marxism and also the theologies, our, our Christian theologies can serve to emphasize the need for us to kind of to leave, leave more privileged circles to abandon this dream of being comfortable um, and to talking about liberation um, solely without the praxis and to actually immersing ourselves within actual people's struggles and lives. Without, uh, no, without immersion, uh, without direct involvement and immersion with the people who are struggling, I would say one may just spend time theorizing. <laughs> Absolutely, theorizing, yes. Yeah, uh, theorizing and and there's a danger of that one may claim to know more than what the people are actually uh, doing and and this is where I would say the elitism of the so-called those who spend so much time in the and in, in theory theory making rather than in doing something and we can avoid that if one has one remains immersed in the struggle of the people. And it's also important that uh, we can also learn from them, okay? And they can also, you know, they can also correct our own misconception, our own theories, and the way we do things. There's, there's that attitude, uh, especially when you deal with the poor and when you deal with the oppressed, is that they don't know things. And the so-called expert, the so-called educated, we know more, or we know, you know, we know more, and we are uh, we are more capable, and we can provide them with all the solution that they need, and that is actually perpetuating this this injustice in the in the injustice of domination and the injustice of a kind of cultural imperialism, because we want to uh, impose our own views, impose what we think is good for them. Yeah. Immersion is a way of correcting our elitism, correcting that we know more, and it would always have a humbling experience when we are with the people. Part of being immersed with them is learning together. Okay. 
Dr. Agrawal, this has been great. I really appreciated our time together. Uh, I know it's late there, so I'm going to go ahead and, and let you go. But um, thank you so much for... Yes. Uh, you know, it's a busy day for me. I just had my labor labor seminar with yes. Union <laughs> before our meeting. <laughs> yes, really appreciate you. Again, this is part two of a, of, of a two-part series. If you haven't checked out the first episode, please do. I will link in the show notes several of Dr. Aguilon's writings. And uh, again, thank you so much for your work, your witness, and your participation in the struggle. Yes, thank you. And let's continue the conversation. It, <laughs> we will. There's, yeah, there's definitely so much more we can talk about. And I'd love to have you on again sometime. Uh, this has been okay. great. So. Thank you.